Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 50, Being Human and Suffering Less Along the Way. In this episode, Noah Levine, Buddhist teacher and Dharma punk, shares with us his early experience with Buddhism. He also shares teachings from his newest book, Against the Stream, and ponderings on the nature of karma, grace, and hippie Buddhists. This is part one of a two-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To learn more about the Do No Harm Movement, and to receive your free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit donoharm.us. So I'm speaking today with Noah Levine, and Noah Levine is a meditation teacher in the Insight Meditation Tradition. He's a student of Jack Cornfield's. He went through the Spirit Rock teacher training program a couple of years ago, and he's also the author at such a young age doing a lot of stuff of two books. One is called Dharma Punks, and the other is his most recent, and it's entitled Against the Stream, a Buddhist Manual for Spiritual Revolutionaries. So thank you, Noah, for joining us, and uh, welcome to the Buddhist Geeks. Happy to be here. Nice. So I figured starting off, uh, your, your book, Dharma Punks, is really a memoir, and it really describes a lot of the great detail of your, of your spiritual path, and it's, it's very exciting and very good read. Uh, it's one of my favorite spiritual books of all time, actually. And so since you've already presented all that, I didn't want to have you repeat that entire book. So instead, I was wondering if maybe you could give a small thumbnail sketch of your, of your spiritual path for the people that aren't familiar uh, with your earlier writings. Oh, the, the kind of the overview of, of my path? Yeah, just like a quick uh, sketch. Sure. Well, my father was practicing Buddhism when I was growing up and teaching Stephen Levine. And, you know, by the time I was a little kid, he'd already written a book about Buddhism. And so I grew up around it, but wasn't, wasn't indoctrinated with it. Mm. And uh, it was more sort of modeled. It was more kind of how they lived. And my mother and father were divorced. And my early life was, you know, difficult. I found punk rock and uh, drugs and booze and violence to be uh, kind of a solution for the angst that I felt mm. as a youth. And got myself into all kinds of trouble behind this mm. sort of pseudo punk rock rebellion and, and crossed the line into drug addiction. And, uh, and that was in the 80s? And some serious crimes, yeah. And these are, this is kind of in the 70s and 80s as okay. I was growing up. Gotcha. And I found myself in 1988, you know, having been arrested for three felonies over the last couple of years and, um, you know, in and out of juvenile hall for, for many years and probation and all of that stuff. And I found myself locked up again and looking at a seven-year prison sentence and scared and hopeless and my father said, well, why don't you try meditation? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, you know, it's of course more complicated than all of that, but the thumbnail is, is that I tried meditation mm. and I found something uh, applicable for me in that simple way in which at that time, so much of my difficulty was fear, even though I was in jail, a lot of my suffering at that time, it was fear of prison and, and of the future, and it was regret and 
and resentment and about the past. And in the moment, as I began to pay attention to my breath, there was some relief. I was like, okay, here I am in this jail cell, detoxing from drugs and booze, but I'm actually okay mm. in this moment. The future is much worse than the present. Mm. The past is much worse than the present. And so that kind of initial beginning of practice started then. And then my first couple of years, I was locked up for about nine months until I, I was 17 years old at the time. Mm. It just kept me locked up until I turned 18. And once I got turned 18, I got out. And my first couple of years of my practice were pretty uh, lazy, pretty sketchy, you know, kind of. I used meditation occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at, at about 19 years old, I got myself into a little bit more trouble, although I'd been drug-free. You know, I got sober at 17 off of the drugs, but I got myself into some trouble with graffiti and stealing and other kind of youthful, you know, hooliganism. <laughs> and that's when I finally sort of said, okay, the only thing that, the only place that I've ever really found much satisfaction, much hope is through meditation. And that was when I went off and I started uh, sitting meditation retreats with uh, Jack Hornfield. Mm. My first retreat with him and around 1990, 91, somewhere in there. And that was it for me, you know, in a big way, you know, it was kind of like, that was it. I mean, that was what kind of really said, okay, this is where I'm going to put my time and energy. Mm -hmm. Those first couple of years of serious practice, I was shopping around a bit still and kind of trying to figure out, okay, who taught what and what's the difference between Buddhism and the Hare Krishnas and, you know, kind of that spiritual shopping. Right. You know, uh, what do the Sufis have to say? And, and what is this Mahayana versus Theravada? And you know, I spent a couple of years, although my main practice was insight practice. Mm-hmm. I was really sort of checking out all of the different traditions to find out which one really fit me. And then within a, a couple of a few years of my practice and continuing to do insight meditation retreats, I really settled in. Uh, in the Theravadan tradition, having met a bunch of Theravadan monks and having uh, studied with some Mahayana traditions and just feeling like uh, the experiences that I've been having and uh, and something about that kind of old school mentality of I want to know what it was originally. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> where's the roots? Mm-hmm. When I listen to punk rock, I, you know, I like to listen to the roots of it. Mm. When I listen to Buddhism, I like to listen to the roots of it. <laughs> <laughs> Not to say that there aren't some good new school bands around or some good new school teachings around. There are. Right. Uh, but I, I prefer the roots. Gotcha. And, uh, yeah, so that kind of brings me up to, uh, you know, really dedicating to practice and service. And, you know, 10 years after I learned meditation in juvie, I uh, went back in and started teaching meditation in the same juvenile hall. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, went back to school and, and, and ended up going all the way through graduate school and become a therapist. And Jack Cornfield invited me to, uh, you know, do his teacher training program. And, you know, that's kind of what Dharma punks and the path, you know, that brought me up to, to doing that book and to, uh, you know, putting myself out there more as a teacher mm-hmm. uh, that has happened over the last you know, seven years or so. Nice. Yeah. And your new book, um, 
unlike your unlike your first one, which was more what you just described your your early path and and all yeah. the things that you went through, really your memoir in in, in a way. Yeah. Um, this new book is much more of like a traditional meditation text. It's it's very. Uh, I found it interesting that you gave an overview of a lot of the different Buddhist lists, like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Hindrances, the Brahma Viharas. You went straight back to the roots, like you said. And I'm I'm wondering uh, why this book you chose to to write a more traditional kind of Buddhist book, and and uh, and also who who you think the audience is for this book. Um. I'm never sure who my audience is. <laughs> I never quite know. But it was more just that, like, having done a lot of teaching and people having said, oh, I really like the way you presented. It feels like it's a little bit different than the presentation that I've gotten from other teachers. Right. And so I felt like it was sort of called for to put that down in writing. Mm. So, you know, these are the practices the teachings and practices that have that I practice, right? This is the path that I follow, and this is how I understand and interpret the Buddha's teachings and you know Buddhism. Mm-hmm. It's an and interesting putting that out there in a form where people can hang out with it rather than having to come to a lecture or listen to, you know, but they can sit down and read it and reflect on it for themselves, right? found an interesting combination that on the one hand you were presenting these very traditional teachings and on the other hand you you did have a very new interpretation of some of the teachings or the, at least the way you expressed it was uh, using certain language like you mentioned Siddhartha calling him Sid and I mean the whole title Against the Stream is really referring to both the Buddhist teachings and the kind of punk rock ethos of going against the conventional and I find it interesting that the the combination of those two coming together in your work. Yeah, and of course, you know, there's something true that I am highlighting this, but I'm definitely not making it up. You know, I mean, this is this is an ancient and, and traditional view, right? Uh, in the Buddha's own words, you know, against the stream is as a direct quote from him, right? You know, uh, that in some ways. You know, over the last 20 years, I've heard a couple of teachers mention this this teaching here and there. You know, once in a while, you'll hear somebody refer to Patisotagami, to the uh, against the stream or against the current way of the Buddha's teachings. But very often, that doesn't get highlighted. And so a lot of what I was doing was, you know, it's one of the teachings that has resonated most with me mm-hmm. because of my own tendency to rebel into right. against. So I just really wanted to highlight that in this book and to make it accessible to you know people like me who have that uh, rebellious nature mm. and handle that rebellious nature in a positive way rather than a negative way. Yeah, it was it was interesting uh, reading uh, reading your book and seeing uh, one of your original apprehensions about Buddhist practice when you first came to it. You wrote. I thought that meditation was just mindfulness and that all this compassion and love shit was something extra. Uh, I felt that the real spiritual path is only about present time awareness and paying attention to the impermanent, impersonal, and unsatisfactory nature of all things. I was suspicious that perhaps all the flowery love stuff was something the hippies added in. <laughs> I, I, I laughed pretty hard it when I read a that quote. Suspect, isn't it? Yeah, and it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, and there's a, there's a lot in that quote, and I guess we could go a couple different directions with it, but one direction I'm, I was interested in exploring with you was 
was about what the hippies may have added in and what they didn't. Uh, we've interviewed Brad Warner, who's a Zen teacher, and I think a friend of yours, Ethan Nickturn, uh, mm-hmm. both pretty young Western teachers. And I guess my question is, have you guys seen or have you seen certain things that the first generation of teachers here in the West did, in fact, add in that would be different for, say, someone like Ethan or yourself? Well, for the most part, I don't think that many of that first generation of teachers actually added anything in. Mm. Uh, just as I don't feel that I'm adding anything in. I, I think that it just depends on what we highlight in our teachings. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, that maybe uh, loving kindness and compassion have been really highlighted mm-hmm. by a lot of teachers, and the uh, suffering has been uh, not as clearly addressed. And that would be my sort of main critique of, sort of say, a, a, a hippie, Buddhist might be someone who is focusing uh, so much on the the love and and compassion and joy of existence, uh, but not quite having a balanced understanding of the uh, you know great oppression and and suffering and confusion. And so it's just uh, more on what we're focusing on. Uh, both are true. Both are teachings of the Buddha, mm-hmm. right? Both dukkha and sukkha, you know, both suffering and pleasure or happiness or joy. So it just depends on where we're focusing our attention. Yeah. One of the things I found really interesting about what, you, what you're writing about was this notion of karma and grace. Um, you made the observation that some people who start on the spiritual path, and, and this is obvious for any one of us who've you know, spent time meditating in retreat centers, is that, is that some people who start, they don't really follow through with the practices of liberation. They they kind of come to it and they, they are exposed to it and they're like, well, it's not for me or I just choose not to do it. And then there's other people who come to it in, in the same fashion, the same way. And it's like something takes hold of them. They catch the, you know, the awakening bug and they really go on to transform their lives in that direction. And so I guess the question is, what, what's up with that? Like, why do some people catch the awakening bug and others don't? And, and how does karma and the notion of grace fit in with that? Well, it's what, that's why I would maybe use a, a notion of grace, because it's one of those things that I can't answer, I can't fathom. And I think grace is a totally un-Buddhist concept, and that it's one of those sort of cop-out concepts that's just like, I can't explain this. Let's call it grace. Because <laughs> I don't know. I mean, technically, I think it would be karmic momentum mm-hmm. from, you know, from past, past lives, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it's like that's so sort of esoteric, too. It's like not a very um, satisfactory answer in itself. So basically, I just kind of fall back to the, I don't know. Mm. I don't know why some people get that that uh, that bug and the willingness to to continue even when it gets really difficult, mm. and why so many people give up when it gets hard or when it's no longer fashionable or when whatever happens, you know, when they get comfortable, right? Like, oh, I was suffering a lot, so I started practicing, and now I'm not suffering so much, so I'll stop practicing, mm. right? I'm comfortable now in this. Uh, existence. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting too that even the people that do stick around, the the path unfolds very different for different people. Can unfold exceedingly quick and have a lot of deep insights very quickly, and and sometimes have of course trouble integrating those too. And then other people, it, it, there are lots of stories of people whose path just very slowly, gradually, kind of comes to fruition over a long period of time. And it's interesting too that the difference between those kinds of things can't really explain it. And I, I guess in a one way you wouldn't really need to and trying to figure it out might in fact <laughs> block that whole process itself yeah. i've always you know consider karma to be one of the one of the best models to try to at least try and and understand a little bit about what's going on there yeah. <clears throat> i don't spend a lot of time trying to to figure it out but i you know i will admit that uh i do feel um saddened by it sometimes mm-hmm. when i see people come around that really the lights go on and they really, you know, find something precious to them. And then something happens and they, you know, turn away from that, which they clearly knew was important for them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I do, I do feel uh, like it's unfortunate that people don't have the follow through for these kind of practices. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing is, and I think it's again why, you know, the Buddha referred to his teaching as against the stream, mm. because it's just not that sexy. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just not like in the long run, it's like, you know, people get into Buddhism and they think it's so cool. And then they realize, like, it's not that cool. <laughs> you know, it's like you just pay attention. And uh, it's not about bright lights and uh, big experiences. That's about this gradual uh, process of becoming kinder and more generous. And there's no big, uh, you know, and that even enlightenment maybe isn't this big bells and whistles, uh, blissful experience, mm-hmm. but it's just a change in our uh, perception mm. and our relationship to this human experience in this world. So, anyways, that's my that's my sort of you know people get disillusioned, you know, because they come with this like oh Buddhism and mm-hmm. you know, like oh, we're gonna get enlightened and it's gonna be fucking really cool. And, <laughs> you know, like oh I've been practicing for five years, I'm at, you know, ten years, twenty years, whatever it is, and it's just not that sexy. <laughs> you know, it's just not that. <laughs> It's just not that cool. It's just more sitting and walking and being kind and generous and, you know, it's really normal. Right. You know, it's not that fancy. It's just really kind of like being human and suffering less along the way. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, 
self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Stancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.